Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. A listener's note before we begin. The following episode contains adult themes and content of a violent nature. It may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, it's Sarah. It's July 2021, and we want to bring you a short update on what's happened since April when we released the last episode of 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre. If you haven't listened to the full 13-episode series yet, you should start from the beginning. We lay out what happened on the weekend of April 18th and 19th, 2020, as a gunman murdered 22 people over the course of 13 hours. A week after the final episode of our series was released, Nova Scotia marked the first year since the killing spree. Because of the pandemic, the events were mostly small and virtual, but I traveled to Truro on that cold, rainy day. There was a memorial run and a private church service. I was just across the street where Global News hosted a special live broadcast of the memorial ceremony. Family members placed bouquets of white roses at the altar for each of the 22 victims. There were musical performances by artists from across the country and remarks from Nova Scotia Premier Ian Rankin and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Jenny Kierstead, whose sister Lisa McCauley was one of the victims, spoke about the grief families have endured and her hope that with time, everyone might begin to heal. What we know is that a trauma such as the one that we've endured can shatter a person's life. I know it has mine. May this ceremony help you to hear the whisper of your own heart calling you back home. Some families took part in another rally at the Bible Hill RCMP detachment that same day, thanking the officers who responded to the shooting spree and demanding accountability from their bosses. Other family members told me they were avoiding these events altogether, spending the weekend with loved ones, reflecting. Almost a month and a half later, on June 2nd, I got a text from Kelly Blair. She asked if I'd seen that a Halifax publication called Frank Magazine had released audio recordings of 911 calls made the night the killing spree began. Three calls in total, one from Kelly's sister-in-law, Jamie Blair, moments before Jamie was murdered, a second from Jamie and her husband Greg's 12-year-old son, who witnessed the killing of both of his parents, and the third from one of their neighbors, who was shot by the gunman while on the phone with a 911 dispatcher, reporting a fire at Don and Frank Galenchen's house. I've talked to the man who called 911, the survivor. We're not naming him because he doesn't want to speak publicly about what happened to him that night. Don and Frank were murdered by the gunman. Their retirement dream home burned to the ground. I instantly went back in time and like visually could see what was going on as I'm listening to this call. Don and Frank's son, John Farrington, said he was horrified by the leaks. You know, my mindset is, oh, you know, 
people taking advantage of the vulnerable, trying to make a quick buck kind of thing, but to actually listen to the calls, you know, especially the one that was pertaining to my uh, my parents' place that was really heartbreaking. You know, it's, uh, it's it, it, I've always said it, it's hard to believe that this has happened, but, you know, hearing the 911 calls just make it that much of a nightmare and just makes it that more real. We won't be playing any of the audio from those 911 calls, and I'll explain our reasons for that in this episode. There's been a huge backlash against the magazine and its editor for releasing this information and against the RCMP, because the recordings confirm some of the things we've reported about what the police knew early in their investigation. Jamie Blair told the dispatchers that her husband was shot. She said that there was a police car in the driveway and that the man who was coming back to her house with a big gun was a neighbor, a denturist who drove these police cars around. This was the first call police received about the shooting. Jamie's son told the dispatcher she was killed while she was calling 911. He said a crazy man was burning down his own garage and murdered both of his parents and that he was driving a police car. The third caller, the one whose name we're not using, told the dispatcher a police officer was on the scene. He said hi to the man that he believed was a police officer, and then there's a sound of gunshots. And the man says, it's my neighbor Gabe. He just shot me in the arm. These calls were made between 10 and 10.30 p.m. on April 18th. That confirms police knew that a denturist named Gabe who owned property in Portapic was shooting people and lighting fires and that he was driving a real-looking RCMP car. But the RCMP failed to release any information to the public about the seriousness of the situation until the next day. More than an hour and a half after Jamie Blair was murdered and an hour after police first got to Portapic, they tweeted that they were, quote, responding to a firearms complaint, end quote. They said nothing about anyone being shot, let alone killed, until they tweeted at 8.02 a.m. on April 19th that they were responding to an active shooter event in Portapic. It was another hour before they told the public who the shooter was, and they didn't tweet about the gunman's police cruiser until 10.17 a.m., more than 12 hours after Jamie Blair told them about the vehicle. These calls were leaked to reporter Paul Polango from an unnamed source that he and Frank Magazine are calling True Blue. They weren't the only leaks, either. A week later, on June 9th, the magazine published surveillance video from the gas station in Enfield where the gunman was killed by two RCMP officers just before 11.30 a.m. on April 19th. The videos, which Polango said also came from True Blue, are about 30 seconds long. They show the two RCMP officers arriving at the gas station in an unmarked SUV, the kind of vehicle driven by the force's emergency response team. The officer driving the SUV comes to a stop. He quickly gets out and draws his pistol, pointing it at a gray Mazda 3 that's parked at the next gas pump. In a video taken from another angle, you see the gunman who's sitting in the driver's seat of the Mazda reaching toward the passenger seat. The officer and his partner then open fire. The whole scene takes about 15 seconds. When it was all over, the gunman was dead and the vehicle was riddled with bullets. That's how the 13-hour-long manhunt ended. The videos were leaked with what appears to be part of an autopsy report for the gunman, photos from the scene, and another short video from a different gas station, less than eight kilometers away, captured a few minutes before the gunman was killed. 
That video shows the gunman trying to fuel up, but the gas station was closed. He tried two pumps and then drove away. The entire time, there were two RCMP members in tactical gear at one of the pumps watching him. Remember that this happened just a few minutes after the gunman murdered his final victim, Gina Goulet. He changed his clothes and stole her vehicle. He was no longer disguised as an RCMP officer, and police have said they were unaware of that. We'd like to note that Global News has not independently verified the leaked information that was published by Frank Magazine, and the leaks themselves are the subject of a couple of investigations, including a criminal investigation headed by the Ontario Provincial Police. Frank Magazine's editor, Andrew Douglas, said the 911 calls were published because it's in the public interest to expose what the RCMP knew about the gunman in those early minutes of the killing spree. And we agree that it's in the public interest to reveal what the RCMP knew and when. That's been one of the central themes of our series. But we think this can be accomplished without sharing the audio itself. Douglas told CTV that the calls would be, quote, absolutely shattering for certain people to hear, end quote. But he said the public interest of publishing the audio outweighed any other considerations. He told CBC that he felt if Frank Magazine had simply published a transcript of the 911 calls, people might not believe the magazine actually had them. He also told CBC he wouldn't have published the audio of the call from the Blair's 12-year-old son if the boy hadn't been so calm and composed while speaking with the 911 dispatcher. Tyler Blair, who's now his younger brother's guardian, posted on Facebook the day the calls were published. He wrote, and I quote, Fuck you, Frank Magazine. You fucking disgust me. End quote. He also said that was the first time he or any of his family heard those calls. Douglas told us that families were made aware in advance that the audio was going to be published. At first, anyone could listen to these calls for free on the Frank Magazine website, but there was immediate backlash. Thousands of people signed a petition to have them removed, and Douglas said there were threats of legal action from the family's lawyer. After that, the magazine put the audio behind its paywall, so only subscribers could access it. Douglas said that initially he didn't want to appear to be profiteering off of the family's suffering, so the audio was made available for free. But he told us putting it behind the paywall made some of the families feel better, so he agreed to do it. This is a, this is a, tor- like a terrible failure. That's Tracy Viancourt. She's a child psychologist and a professor at the University of Ottawa, and we spoke with her a number of times throughout the podcast series. She said publishing the audio of the Blair Boys 911 call could be traumatizing, and it never should have happened. If the person um, who made the call consented, um, then I think we would be having a different discussion, but there was no consent involved. Um, And and also, we're exploiting the distress of individuals and especially the distress of a child who is experiencing the worst moment in his life and uh, and we're voyeurs of that worst moment. I can't imagine why we're doing it. Um, I can't imagine um, how anybody could think this is ethical or morally appropriate. And Tracy said there's another reason to be concerned about privacy and trust. In the United States, it's pretty common for the police to release 911 calls to the public and the media. But in Canada, 911 calls are confidential. Tracy and others say it should stay that way. It also I, singles to children in our community across Canada 
that we can't be trusted and that's not what we want. So we want children to call 911 when they're distressed, when they're in trouble. Um, we don't want them to be second guessing their choice about whether or not their privacy is going to be violated if they're going to be re-abused by what they had um, disclosed on the call. Criminologist Daryl Davies said he too worries that leaking 911 calls could deter people from making that call if they can't trust that what they say will stay private. And while protecting victims' privacy is paramount, Davies said the information in the leaked recordings does appear to cast doubt on what the RCMP knew about the gunman and when they knew it. Because in the days after the shootings happened, police said the information about the gunman's lookalike police car and the weapons he was carrying came to them in its entirety on the morning of April 19th, after the gunman's common-law partner emerged from hiding and provided a statement to the RCMP. It's calling into question then the whole nature of you know what the RCMP knew or didn't know and how effective or ineffective they were in handling this call, especially given what transpired following it. Because, as you know, the, a lot of contradictory information came out of the RCMP when the hunt was on for this individual. And... Uh, So the public can't rely on the National Police Service. So oftentimes uh, there will be pressure to try and find out other avenues, what exactly did go on. But what did we actually learn from these 911 calls? And how does it change our understanding of what happened in the first hours of the killing spree? Listening to the recordings is disturbing, but the details are not entirely new. The calls bolster what we've been saying for more than a year, The RCMP had a lot of information about the gunman and his disguise as a police officer in the first minutes of the killing spree, and they did not warn the public for hours. On April 24, 2020, just five days after the shootings, RCMP Superintendent Darren Campbell said in a press conference that the first officers who arrived in Portapik encountered a witness who said he was shot by the gunman driving a police car. Global News reported that at the time. But Campbell also said that the RCMP thought the gunman had three former police cars, not four, and that they believed they had found them all. Campbell said they thought the shooter was either dead or contained in their perimeter overnight until his partner emerged from hiding the next morning. This assumption cost lives. We reported all of this information in episodes two and three of the podcast when we described the initial police response to the shooting. We questioned why the RCMP didn't take that surviving witness who warned them about the shooter seriously. That surviving witness was the man whose 911 call was leaked to Frank Magazine, the man we're not naming. Now we know there were at least two other witnesses who gave the same information about the gunman's police car. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With 
fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. But the fact that police were told so early about the lookalike police cruiser is not new. It's been reported for more than a year. And in our view, that doesn't warrant publishing the audio particularly of a 12-year-old boy who must live with the memories of that horrific weekend. Criminologist Daryl Davies says this is evidence that the RCMP needs to change the way it communicates with the public. The leaks came almost a year to the day after the force's last press conference about the shootings, where Chief Superintendent Chris Leather promised regular and timely updates in the weeks to come. Those updates never came. They talk about being accountable. They talk about, you know, being transparent and open, but they're not. They're just the antithesis of that. Until that changes, we're going to continue to see, um, you know, the media attempt to get whatever information they can and publish it because uh, it's the only way you can sort of get any accountability from these organizations. But I think if we had a professional working relationship between the press and the police in this country, we wouldn't see something like this. It speaks, you know, volumes about that lack of trust that the media have with police agencies across the country, particularly the RCMP. And uh, that was demonstrated by the absolute, you know, well, I would say chaotic and incompetent manner uh, in which the RCMP held press conferences following these shootings. I mean, all it did was raise more questions that the RCMP did not answer. The RCMP say they're investigating the source of the leaks. On July 2nd, a month after the audio was published by Frank Magazine, the force said in a press release that they've asked the Ontario Provincial Police to conduct an independent criminal investigation. We asked the OPP for details about that and what sections of Canada's criminal code may have been violated. A spokesperson for the OPP said he can't speculate on what, if any, charges may be laid before the investigation's done. One former top-ranking RCMP officer says he thinks they'll need to look internally. There's just too much information coming out. And so it's got to be somebody connected in some way to either the investigation or having access to investigative material. Gary Clement retired as the RCMP's National Director of Proceeds of Crime. You heard from him throughout the series, too. And like Daryl, he said the leaks are evidence of a lack of trust in the RCMP, even by its own members. You, you really have to ask yourself, um, I mean, most police officers that finally leak something to the media, it's because um, it, they, they feel, uh, rightly or wrongly, that that information is not going to be forthcoming to the public. I would hope that's not the case here, but uh, again, time will tell. Gary and Daryl both said that at this point, this kind of information should be released through the public inquiry. The federal and provincial governments launched that inquiry in July 2020. It will hold public hearings in the fall. And while it's not meant to assign blame, it is supposed to examine what happened during the shooting, including how the RCMP responded, 
and the way it communicated with the public and the victim's families. Gary's recommendation? The force needs to be upfront and forthright with the public. The bottom line is, if this information, it appears this information was known early on. Well, if that's the case, everything else we've heard uh, and this, the pronouncements that have been made by members of the force, they're all misleading. And that does not bode well for an organization that wants to be seen as having veracity and uh, have, you know, maintaining uh, justice for the community. And, and I think that's where all where this has really gone sideways. And, I, I you know, it's disheartening. Uh, it should never have happened uh, in this sense. And if the facts are what appears now based on those recordings, then there was a systemic breakdown somewhere in communications and leadership. As we've told you before, the Mounties have routinely refused to answer any questions about their investigation, citing either the public inquiry or the proposed class action lawsuit that victims' families have filed against the RCMP as reasons why they won't talk. But in early June, right around the time of the leaks, we did get some new information from the RCMP through the courts. Superintendent Darren Campbell submitted an affidavit on behalf of the force in response to claims made in the proposed class action lawsuit filed by victims' family members. That document contains more about the police response to the killing spree on April 18th and 19th than we've ever seen from the RCMP before. And it adds detail to the timeline we've been laying out throughout this series, including answering some of the key questions we've asked. That first 911 call was received at 10.01 p.m. on April 18th. As we've told you, this call was made by Jamie Blair. According to the affidavit, she reported that her husband was shot and killed by the gunman. Officers arrived and found several bodies in the streets of Portapique. At 10.46 p.m., 45 minutes after Jamie called 911, Superintendent Campbell was contacted by the on-call critical incident commander, After receiving a short briefing, he approved the force's full-scale critical incident program to respond. The Mounties' emergency response team was ordered to travel directly to the scene from its base at RCMP headquarters in Halifax. The affidavit said the first ERT members got to Portapique at 12.49 a.m., almost three hours after the first call for help. Policing and public safety expert Christian Loprecht says this shows how difficult it was for police to get the situation under control. Rural Canada is a challenging place to police in terms of resources and especially in terms of being able to surge those resources uh, at, a, at, at critical times. And I think that's what we learn here, uh, that the surge on a weekend, a weekend night, um, uh, proved to be... Um, proved to be a considerable challenge for the organization. And on top of that, then some of the assets were unavailable, such as the helicopter out of Moncton. We told you in episode six that the only RCMP helicopter in the region was out for routine maintenance on the weekend of the killing spree. The lawsuit filed by the families claims the force failed to deploy a helicopter capable of doing nighttime searches in Portapique. In its response, the RCMP say officers asked to use the helicopter based out of Moncton at 11.10 p.m. on April 18th, only to find out six minutes later that it was grounded. It wasn't until 6 o'clock the following morning, eight hours after the first 911 call, that the RCMP had any kind of air support, a drone, and a helicopter owned by Nova Scotia's Department of Lands and Forestry helped with the search that day, too. 
We also previously reported that the RCMP didn't ask the Canadian Armed Forces for air support to help with the manhunt. But Campbell's affidavit suggests they did. It says, quote, Additional inquiries to secure air support were made with the Joint Rescue Coordination Center, Canadian Forces, and Canadian Coast Guard, unquote. So we asked the Department of National Defense to clarify this since they told us back in September 2020 that they received no request for help from the RCMP. In a written statement, DND said it can't comment because of the proposed class action lawsuit. But a source familiar with talks between the RCMP and the military told us the police did not make any official request for air support. The RCMP contacted the military to inquire about its capabilities to mount a search operation, the source said. We asked the RCMP what happened here, and they didn't answer. Christian said this shows there should be better arrangements in place so that police and military can share resources in rural and remote parts of the country. He also said one of the things that might come out of the public inquiry is a recommendation for the RCMP and other police services to have better real-time information about what resources are and are not available to respond to a crisis. And unlike many other observers, he thinks the RCMP is probably eager for the inquiry to get started. I think it reinforces that there is a a story that the RCMP will likely be looking forward to, to telling as part of the inquiry. And so rather than, I think, the RCMP fearing that inquiry, I think the inquiry will lay bare uh, many of the challenges associated with contract policing uh, in maritime uh, Canada. Um, and so, um, and I suspect that both provincial and federal governments already have a hint that that's what might be coming out, which is why First, they dithered, uh, but then subsequently they staffed the inquiry as they did, because this isn't just going to be an inquiry about uh, this particular incident. It is going to lay bare a host of challenges uh, in terms of the delivery of policing services. But there's been controversy already with the RCMP's handling of the public inquiry process. Legal experts are calling for the force to replace part of the team it's assigned to provide information to the inquiry, including Chief Superintendent John Robin the man in charge. That's because he's married to one of the top RCMP officers in Nova Scotia, Chief Superintendent Janice Gray, who leads the Halifax RCMP. And Mike Butcher, the husband of the force's top cop in the province, Assistant Commissioner Lee Bergerman, has also been hired as part of that team. He's a retired police officer. Gary Clement said it's just bad optics. I don't know why the RCMP continually shoots itself in the foot. They want to make this look objective. And I know those two members are objective. Uh, believe me, I, I know one of them very well. I work undercover with him. And, and so I, I know what he's, his, where his leanings are. However, from a, uh, looking at it from a pure objectivity point of view, I don't think uh, a lot of people would see it being as an objective process when they're linked to both the senior managers which may or may not be criticized for uh, how they handled certain things. The RCMP say they're reviewing whether the hirings followed all proper procedures and policies, but at this time, both men are still in their positions. As for the inquiry, members of the Mass Casualty Commission made a visit to Portapique on June 4th of this year to get a better sense of the community and all of the different crime scenes. They're planning more community visits to other crime scenes this summer, too. The public hearings will be held from October 26th until December 10th, 2021. 
and we'll continue reporting on any new information. Thanks so much for listening. 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre was created and produced by me, Sarah Ritchie, and Alex Kress. I wrote this bonus episode with Global News investigative reporter Brian Hill. Our story producer is Dila Velasquez. Sound design and audio production by Rob Johnston. Editing assistance from Neil Benedict. Special thanks to Global News supervising national online journalist Drew Hasselback. I'd love to have you tell a friend about this podcast. And you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing 13 Hours on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We have much more on our website, including articles, maps, and photos. All of that written and curated by Brian Hill, Alex Kress, and me. Just head to globalnews.ca slash 13 hours. You can also find us on Instagram at 13 hours podcast. If you have a question about this episode or series, please get in touch on social media or by email at 13 hours at curiouscast.ca. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening. Hi. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now, she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.